Welcome to the launch episode of the Leadership Recipes podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life about their favorite food. For this first episode, we have a special guest. It's my pleasure to introduce Andy Townsend, a national treasurer, as you could say, as he was for a long time the group treasurer of Nationwide Building Society. He's currently the group treasurer of Merchant Bank Close Brothers. Andy is a tall man who has played semi-professional rugby for a long time, and he has been on a fascinating food journey. Let's find out. Thanks for, for joining us. Andy, do you want to tell us first what part food plays in your life and, and how maybe how it has evolved over time? Yeah, sure. I was a reasonably competent rugby player for many years, so I spent a lot of my youth and, and adult life with big guys who liked their food and you know, almost took a a sort of pride in 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 how much food they could consume and of course that food was that food was protein based and meat based and and you know incredibly traditional and even just a couple of years down the line feels quite anachronistic in in, in lot, lots of ways but even prior to that a very traditional working class background in in liverpool parents who who remembered the war and remembered rationing so a real focus on on three square meals and there were meat and two veg and so on and so forth. I was always big. I always had a big appetite. Didn't really have as much discipline as I should have done. So I've then spent, you know, as long as I can remember, uh, battling this 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 trade off between really loving food, both eating it, preparing it, going out to eat, seeing it as a real social thing, with a battle against you know, gaining weight, particularly when I was trying to play a half decent level of sport. Never mind the health consequences uh, and when I look back at photographs there's you know there's a very high proportion of them <laughs> I have a plate of food in front of me or a, uh, something in my hand which I'm, I'm clearly halfway through eating or, or, or so on so I, I love the social aspects of it but I do, I do recognize that you can definitely have too much of a of a good thing and how has that evolved over time um, are you still a big meat eater Funny you should ask. Funny you should ask that. I took a decision three and a half years ago to try and, and stop eating meat. I, I'd love to claim some of the moral high ground around being driven by environmental concerns or animal welfare and so on and so forth. And I'm not indifferent to those those things, but I can't claim that they were the drivers. It was much more about about the health aspects of that. It's probably relevant to say that my wife and I came to parenthood quite late. I was 45, she was 47 when we had our first child and we had number two a couple of years later. And, you know, you don't have to be a genius to do the maths and figure out that all things being equal, there's a there's a chance that, you know, with older parents, they they have sort of caring responsibilities, you know, at a younger age than their, their peers do. And we, we're both very conscious of that. I feel that anything that we can do to reduce that likelihood, we we should do. So that generally, you know, it would encourage us to try and look after ourselves, both in terms of the food and, and exercise. But in particular, I, I do read a lot. And, you know, I was, I was kind of becoming aware almost by accident of some of the health concerns around both the amount of, of meat that we were eating, but also the nature of that, that meat, you know, convenience uh, comes at a, comes at a, at a, at a price and, and cheap food comes at a, a price and as soon as I started doing some digging into into that I thought there's not a great argument certainly for eating as much meat as uh, as, as we as we have done 
and it, a lot of people will reference this uh, Netflix documentary, Game Changers, which is really about the effects of animal proteins on on sports and athletics, uh, which I found are totally fascinating. But, you know, I didn't immediately drink the, the Kool-Aid. I recognise that most of these programmes have a degree of, of lobbying and sponsorship and so on and so forth. But there were quite a few aspects of it did make me sit up and, didn't make me sit up and t- take notice. I'm a big NFL fan. And there's one of the one of the NFL franchises, almost half the team are vegan. Of course, these guys are enormous and in- incredibly strong and powerful. I think the guy who came third, I want to say, in the world's strongest man, and he certainly holds the record for one of the one of the events. He's 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 vegan. In fact, his his catchphrase is "strong as an ox." So that that was that was quite sort of a populist thing. But I, I then came across um, something called Forks Over Knives, which is much more medically focused. And that is basically uh, exploring the theory that a lot of, of particular diseases associated with aging and cancers and so on and so forth can be avoided and sometimes even reversed with, with, with what the, the Americans would call a, a whole food diet. And that, was, that really was a very persuasive and, and kind of eye-opening to me. And it, I remember it was it was just before it was between Christmas and New Year that I, I watched this one. So I, I didn't class it as a New Year resolution, but I said, right, I'm going to start. I didn't start on that day, not least because we had a fridge full of cooked turkey and chipolatas and <laughs> all that stuff that you you have over Christmas. But sure enough, first first of January 2020, I thought, well, let's see how it goes. And three and a half years in, um, loving it, loving it. Mm, fascinating. And are you are you a cook or a spectator? Oh, I, I'm I'm definitely a cook, and um, I, I wouldn't claim any any great proficiency. I kind of follow recipes, um, but in our house, if I don't cook, then nobody eats. Um, <laughs> my, my wife has all kinds of qualities, but cooking isn't one of them. She's she has a she, she proudly has a fridge magnet that says uh, "Can't cook, won't cook." Um, obviously, becoming a mum, she's forced, especially when I'm I'm away or with work. She, the kids don't starve, but I think it's fair to say that you know the interesting thing, the the the, the more consideration that, that that's, that's put into what this family eats comes from comes from me. And the family of they have they haven't all stopped eating meat, but they absolutely all four of us or all three of them eat a fraction of what they they ate you know prior to three and a half years ago. Mm. And so, in in this program, we we showcase we showcase a recipe. Um, so, what is your your favourite dish or recipe, either vegan or non-vegan, that you would like us to showcase today? Yeah. So, I wouldn't necessarily claim it's my favourite, but I think it's 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 right up there. It's definitely in, in the, the top five. But it also has some resonance around work which is why i kind of it's a bit it's my if it's my equivalent of desert island discs you know desert island dishes i suppose that's where we're gone it's a version of shakshuka the, the middle eastern sort of aubergine based dish um mm-hmm. but rather than eggs um i use falafel in it and do a, a add a sort of tahini lemon uh, dressing to it and it looks it's, it's delicious it's 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 more of a winter dish it's quite hearty it's a good thing to stick in a bowl in the middle of the table and it gets oohs and ahs, you know, if you've got guests or, or whatever. It's very easy. I mean, one, one thing about most of this plant-based cooking, it's, it's pretty quick and it's pretty easy for the most part, or at least the stuff I do is. Yeah, so that's so it's this, it's this um, 
aubergine and falafel shakshuka, which I would tend to just serve with, I don't know, couscous or flatbreads or ma- maintain them the, the Middle Eastern theme. Fantastic. And, and what, what do you think is the secret to making a good one? Layers of flavour, I believe the phrase is. Um, a lot of the, the success of some of the best plant-based food, a lot of it lies in the in, if you get, I always say, if you, you can't go wrong if you go east. If you live in the UK and you go east, well, you, you call in, in you call in the Italy on the way and have maybe some, some tomato-based uh, sauce of, with pasta or whatever, but pretty soon you get to the, the Middle East and, and flatbreads and falafels and the hummus and things. And then by the time you've reached India and Thailand and China, the world's your oyster, um, or whatever the vegan equivalent of an oyster is. With that. But I, I think with particularly some of the oriental cooking, there can be quite a, an imposing list of ingredients. But actually, it's generally add a teaspoon of that, a teaspoon of that, a teaspoon of that, a teaspoon of that. It's, it's child's play and it's very quick. So once you've sort of got over the um, hump of having 25 different ingredients listed, you know, I, it's something I can go back to. And I think, again, with this shakshuka, the different adding the different things at different times, where it's the smoked paprika or the chili flakes or, or or whatever, as you as you sort of build build up the dish. So it's it's not a long time, but it, equally it's not one of the it's not one of your ten minute solutions. I think as well that any lemon sauce that you create at the end, that's the only bit that takes a little bit of of, of anything chefy to get the sort of texture of that right. And if you're not if you don't get it right. You know, it takes it looks grey, and nobody wants wallpaper paste poured over their tea. In my experience, this sounds salivating. Um, yeah. uh, I will, I will uh, look forward to seeing your recipe, and then I will share it with with uh, our listeners. This is obviously this 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 podcast is called Leadership Recipes. So I always try and make a link between food and leadership, either in your choice of foods or in the way you cook or the way you cook with others. Do you see a link with your leadership style? Yeah, a couple of things. And one of the reasons I, I chose this was that we, when I I'd sort of reconfigured uh, my management team, it's like we had a new joiner, someone got promoted. And, you know, I mentioned that I, I played rugby, I played a lot of team sports. Um, it's it's very much at my, my core, the whole concept of a team and the whole being greater than some of the parts. And, and as part of, of getting this team up and running, we have a, a very small um, cottage up in the Yorkshire Dales. And we, the, the five of us plus a facilitator, we did an offsite up at this this cottage, uh, rather than going you know to a fancy hotel or or whatever. And it wasn't done for economic reasons, although we did probably save the company a couple of thousand quid or something. Um, but on the it was no it was two days, and on the the night we we did a a sort of equivalent of come dine with me. So we split ourselves into three three teams of two, drew names out of a hat as to who we were with and which course we'd do, and I I, I got the main the main course along with Rob. And so we did this vegan shakshuka, and uh, when when we announced, and nobody knew who, who was um, who was get, getting what what each of us were doing, we kept that a closely guarded secret. Um, and when we announced, you know, we did them put the menu together on on the night. You know, everyone's face fell a little bit when I realised they were going to be eating plants as they saw it. But it was it was actually a huge su- su- success. And we the evening itself generally the fact that food was a centerpiece, and we we're all cooking it together. You know, I think without people realising, they're suddenly doing, you know, team building just in the same way as if they were building a raft or getting out of an escape room or, or, or whatever, but without labelling it as, as such. The other thing we did was to each person to um, confidentially send me 
two music tracks which which had some meaning for them. So while we were doing this, we had this playing, and we'd try and guess, you know, who had picked which particular track, and then whether we got it right or not, the the individual would say, "This is my track," and explain why it um it, it you know, it meant something to them. And some of it was really quite profound and personal. And I and I you know, I remember sitting there as we were set, getting ready to go home the next afternoon, that without it sort of being positioned as such this team had suddenly spent an awful lot of time together in a very in a tiny little kitchen by the way it was like being on boats or something learned an awful lot about one another worked together and without giving it the sort of some of the label which makes can make these things feel a little bit contrived and a bit self self-conscious and of course it was all done around food and i encouraged the the guys to talk about what we've been doing rather than you know the management team disappears off for two days and everyone kind of wonders what they what they've been up to and word went round like wildfire you know we'd been in a little cottage in the middle of nowhere and we cooked together and and, and and so on so it was so it was, it was great and it, it didn't have to be food but i think food is a very social thing it's, it's something you, you grow up eating food with your family um a, a, you know a former colleague of mine he'd often talk about the importance of breaking bread together um, and we'll try and make a make a conscious decision to 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 do that. So I, th- I think you know, almost food as a as a concept, as a, as a sort of enabler, plays a big part. But then almost thinking a bit differently about it, I could not have envisaged you know not so many years ago as a as a major carnivore, king of the barbecues, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, changing my food style and adapting it, you know, to to the diet I have now. And in the same way, I think about how, how you know, at, at times my management, or firstly, how my management style has adapted over over the years, and the reality that you know, my kind of what got you here may not get you there, or that only having one style will will definitely limit you. And it's sort of stretching the analogy a bit, but I think I can easily apply all of that to to food. Fascinating. This this is a nice segue into um, a piece which I called uh, the Madeleine Questionnaire. Now, Marcel Proust was famous for having a a, a short burst questionnaire, and I've, I've just I'm focusing in the, on on a mix of of leadership and food. So let's just play along, if if that's okay with you. Your favorite virtue in general. I'm just reminded of Greg Mark's comment that um, his key virtues were honesty and integrity. And if you don't like them, I've got I've got some others here instead. <laughs> um, I think it's honest. I think it is honesty. I think okay. it is honesty. I, I I'm a bit of an open book, and I, okay. and I dare say at times over over the years that you know hasn't served me as particularly well. But when I get the sense that anybody is you know duplicitous, I find that very very difficult to uh, to accept or or or, or to forgive. Your favourite quality in a peer? Determination. Your favourite quality in a team member? Loyalty. The most important future trend that affects your business? Digitalisation. The most important future trend that affects the world in general? The environment. Your idea of a good night out? Pub crawl. Your last great restaurant meal? A... Vegan pad thai in Shoreditch three days ago. Excellent. Your last great home dish? A Korean randon style noodles with 
chili, shiitake, mushrooms, and aubergine. Oh, your favorite ingredient? Chili. Your most hated ingredient? Marzipan. Excellent. Is that um, an ingredient? Well, I guess, really, it is, is it? I guess it is. Uh, you can buy it off the shelf. Um, sweet or savory? Savory. In which world cuisine country would you like to live? Somewhere oriental, maybe Thailand or Korea. Okay. If you were a chef, who would that be? Um, ooh. Rick Stein. Okay. Uh, if you were a superhero? I'm trying not to be distracted by my son's love of the Marvel movies. I think old school su Superman. Why not? If you were a musician, an actor, an actress, or, or sorry, an, an artist, who would that be? Elvis Costello. Um, and finally, your favorite cookbook? Uh, East. By oh yes, it's the vegan. It's the vegan cookbook, isn't it? Yeah, Mira Sodal. Yeah, we'll put it. We'll put it as a link in the um, in the details. Um, I have it too. It's a great book. Any final words of wisdom on on food and leadership before we wrap it up? Well, what, one of the great things about food is it's very often accompanied with wine, um, and that's a journey in in and of itself, which is totally fascinating. That the exploration is as much of the fun as the, 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 the final product. And I think that an awful lot of, of work programs, you've got to enjoy the journey because quite often you never get to the, the end destination. But planning the journey, embarking on the journey, the sort of road movie sense in which, you know, that aligns with work, I think, is uh, if you don't enjoy that, it's, it's going to be hard work. That's, that's, that's very wise. Thanks for sharing. Where are you in your wine journey, by the way? Um, I'm in increasingly being persuaded that the French actually do know something about wine. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm making a slightly glib comment, but I probably like a lot of people who started drinking wine in the 90s when it suddenly became a mass product. You, some of the New World stuff was cheaper. It was it was not not meant to sound too highfalutin, but it was more accessible. You know, some of the Aussie Chardonnays and so on and and, and so forth. Whereas I think the old world, France in particular, really rewards taking a bit of time to understand. And particularly if you're lucky enough to spend some time there. And just after lockdown, I spent some time in Saint-Julien and was simply blown away by the whole wine culture. But then nipped across the border into Spain, where in Rioja, the culture is so different. It's, you know, it's T-shirts and shorts and flip-flops, but phenomenally good good wines and just in, in what's you know just a few hours drive away to have such a contrast sort of absolutely fantastic and i think there's a time there's a time and a place for for both um and wine wine travel is great you know what's not to like about italy or france or rioja or california or south africa england not not so much maybe maybe if the climate carries on changing while there's some decent sparkling wines i don't think wine tourism is 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 something we're going to be sort of seeing an awful lot of so i think for my lifetime we'll still be going to those places that we just mentioned hmm. it, it is true i mean that you know it's, it's, a, it's a nice roundabout way the the influence of of global warming on wine growth um, and alcohol content is having a huge impact in all areas of the world uh, you know i guess the country suffering most at the moment is probably italy but 
even in France, you end up with some some Bordeaux at fourteen and a half percent, which you know, if you if you were above twelve and a half percent twenty years ago, people thought you'd be mad. So yeah. yes, the the journey is is interesting, but will keep evolving, which will keep us traveling, which is something we both enjoy. Thank you very much for for your time, Andy. It was a, it was a delight speaking with you and sharing your ideas on food evolution, including your own evolution. Um, and uh, we will put your your uh, recipe as well as uh, other links in the uh, in the bottom of of, of the uh, of the page. Um, enjoy and see you all next time. I'm Valentine, and in part two of each episode, I'll be joining Francois, my dad, biggest culinary inspiration, and the person with whom I agree and disagree with most in the kitchen. And we'll discuss the recipe itself, where it comes from, what it should look like and taste like. We'll give you some shortcuts to help you make it faster, and some top tips to take the recipe up a notch and impress your guests. As always for this, I'm joined by my co-host and excellent cook, Valentine. Nice to be here. Nice to see you. So, Valentin, where does shachuca come from? Right, well, it's a complicated uh, question, actually. Uh, it's complicated geographically and linguistically. It does come from North Africa in the Maghreb region, but the word's origins are debated. It could have a Berber origin, but most sources point to an, a Maghrebi Arabic origin. Uh, they do agree, the sources, on the fact that it means mixture. So it's quite a general term for a food that's a mix of different ingredients, but it's come to refer to a thick tomato sauce with an onion base. And so where do you find it? Um, you can find it in Libya. And uh, more recently, it's, uh, it's made its way to Israel via uh, Tunisian immigrants. And uh, that's actually the way that it became popularized in the UK quite recently through chefs such as Yotam Otelengi. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we know where it's coming from, but what is it? Uh, at its simplest, it's a robust tomato sauce full of flavor in which you poach eggs. Uh, it has a thick texture, so you can create dimples into which you drop the eggs, and you then cover the dish and poach the eggs in a few minutes. A serving consists of a whole egg, a big dollop of sauce, and you eat it with a little flatbread. It's very flavorsome, and it can form a hearty breakfast, a quick lunch, or even a main dinner course, depending on quantities. Okay. So tell me, what are the basics of making a good shakshuka? Well, I'd like to probably start with a very basic recipe, and from there we can build to Andy's favorite. All right. So the simplest, the simplest sauce has a base of chopped onions, which are mildly cooked in oil, and you add tomatoes and seasoning. The seasonings would typically typically include cumin seeds. And if tomatoes are unripe or out of season, you also need a thickening agent. So tomato paste, for example. You can add other flavorings uh, and spices, for example, garlic, paprika, uh, and other vegetables such, such as cubed peppers. You find that a lot in Algeria and Morocco. Uh, the key is to reduce the sauce to dimple stage, uh, when you can push the sauce and make a hole to drop your eggs into. Uh, as you can guess, this will vary with the quality of vegetables, and it's therefore a good idea to allow plenty of time or even to make a batch in advance. Right, okay, so here's where I have to step in. Batch cooking in advance is something that I'm not really an expert at. So I've got a friend who always says, if you want to eat something good today, make it yesterday. So do you think that this approach would apply in this case? 
Yes, as uh, as you sometimes say, the flavors need to get to know each other. And although the flavors are simple, once you add more vegetables, um, then combining them will will you know advanced cooking will will improve things. I have to quote and uh, actually give credit to Chef John for the uh, <laughs> for a lot of the previous ideas because he's been a, a strong influence in my cooking. There you go. So like all reducing sauces, uh, you should go easy on the seasoning and adjust towards the end when the flavors have concentrated and the, the water quantity has reduced. Right. I think this is something, uh, another thing that I struggle with is that patience in the kitchen. So when it gets to, when it's at the watery stage, that's usually where I, I, I really want to give up. So I think that that's really my biggest challenge when it comes to cooking a tomato sauce, just being, being patient. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting because you you often can go from watery to burnt, uh, or, or remain watery because you don't have the patience. So, so yeah. is it is it a low and slow, or is it more of a medium? It's a me, it's a medium. It's a medium and medium. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you will notice that I'm not providing any quantities. You just pile in the flavors by adding big dollops of everything, with a focus on a balanced taste, uh, probably a la Jimmy Oliver you know, bish, bash, bosh. So if you are dead set on having a specific recipe, one idea is that you can write the recipe as you go. And then next time you'll have your own quantities that will reflect your taste and you can replicate it exactly. But it's a lot of trial and error usually until exactly. you get it just right. Yeah, and if you've been drinking while you're cooking, you better write things down. When the sauce is ready and bubbling gently, crack eggs one at a time in a cup, good practice anyway and drop them in turn into the dimples you will have just made with a spoon. Cover the dish and wait about five minutes. Then test the egg's readiness with your finger. They should feel just like regular poached eggs, soft, but with a bit of bounce. Actually, it's, it's quite a nice method for poaching eggs because it, it's probably a lot easier than, than in water, right? Yeah, you don't have to create that little swirl effect and agonize about vinegar and no vinegar. This is quite straightforward. Mm, good to know. So when it's ready, serve immediately with a warmed up flatbread. Uh, in the UK, shop bought tortillas, soft tortillas will, will do, or any Mediterranean flatbread. All right, now tell me about Andy's recipe. So Andy's recipe is the posh version. Uh, the link to the recipe is in the, in the podcast description. Uh, so I'll, I'll just give you tips on how to make it well. Uh, I'll just give you a very quick a very quick description of what it is. Uh, so his chosen version is by uh, Irish vegan chef Onia Carlin, which of course is not spelled like it's pronounced, so it's A-I-N-E. And the main differences are threefold. The first one is that to be vegan, he replaces the eggs with falafel. The base is more sophisticated because it includes aubergines. And finally, she creates a sweet and savory drizzling sauce. Otherwise, you cook it exactly the same way as in the basic recipe. Okay, so actually here I've got a few tips that you sent me for, for the base of the sauce. And as always, I, I have some questions and some critiques. So let's have a look. So you say to add salt when you sweat the onions to make them soften faster. Um, is that a myth? Is that true? Is it a scientific method? Yes, it is. So you can use uh, bicarbonate to soften onions and that will be almost instant but it reduces to a mush and it also can taste quite bitter. So salt is a sort of in-between approach. You, you salt the onions and you will significantly uh, uh, get softer onions quicker. 
But of course, if you salt too much, then that salt is still in your recipe once it's reduced. So go easy on the salt. Okay. And speaking of salt, next tip is to salt and disgorge your aubergines in a colander in advance. So I think that we can all agree that this is a good tip. It's kind of a, a next level tip because if you, if you don't do it, I mean, the dish will come out fine, but it will take longer to cook and you won't get that charred taste. And uh, so I think it's a good idea. But it did make me think of a tip that you showed me a few years ago, which is the microwave tip. Do you want to tell everybody what that is? Sure. So with the aubergine, what you want to do is you want to break down the cell walls of the aubergine. And don't ask me which cell and which walls, but essentially you want the aubergine to release water. Uh, otherwise, it absorbs 65 times its weight in, uh, in oil. Uh, maybe not 65, but a lot of oil. And so to break down the walls and to get the aubergine to release its water, typically you salt it, but an alternative is to microwave it. And if you microwave it and put it on uh, on uh, absorbent, absorbent paper, uh, you will actually achieve the same effect uh, faster and without using any salt. Now, the salt itself is not a big deal because as the aubergine loses its water, the salt drains away and actually... You could barely taste it unless you've really gone overboard with the salt. Okay, good to know. So uh, after you've added the tomato components to the sauce, you pop the lid on until you get to a good boil, to a good bubbling, and that'll speed things up. I think that that's nothing to say there. Absolutely. Go easy on the smoked paprika as it can easily dominate. Same goes for the chili because the strength will concentrate as the sauce reduces. I mean, I think here you've kind of got a, a tip that's really useful for me because when I get impatient, I might want to add a lot of the spices as I'm tasting the sauce. But then again, when I get to the end point, it might, the balance might not quite be there. So good, good to keep in mind. Yeah, I think that what you do is you, you taste as you go along, but you refrain from acting. You say, ah, I need to look out for maybe a slightly stronger or, or more salty taste, but let's not, just, let's not do it just yet. Let's wait for this thing to reduce first. This is fast becoming a, a fable and an, an ethical lesson. I, I like it. Okay, so that's the tips that you sent me. Is there anything else? Uh, yeah, the falafel. Uh, the falafel, you need to warm them up with the pan uncovered. They will absorb moisture from the sauce itself and they'll start seeming and actually grow slightly in size. But if you put a cover on, uh, they will quickly overcook and they will taste like wet warm bread and that's not very nice remember that falafels are already cooked you're just reheating and steaming them uh, and so go easy okay what about the sauce essentially it's a sweet and, and and slightly tart sauce at the same time so if you're missing one of the sweet ingredients you can always top up with sugar or a syrup even maple syrup uh, the pomegranate molasses in the recipe brings some acidity on top of the sweetness and so if you don't have them, add more lemon juice. Uh, in terms of texture, start with a fairly thick sauce until the mix tastes right. And then you just loosen it with a bit of water to drizzling texture. So there you have it. You have a nice tasty base. You have some plump falafels and you have a very pleasant drizzling sauce and some warm flatbread. What is there not to like? I'm feeling quite hungry now. There you go. So, bon appétit. Um, as always, the recipe is in the episode description. If you have questions or comments, you can find me on LinkedIn as François Moscovici. I'd love to hear from you. 
Valentine, thank you very much. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for having me.